0: Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered,
1: for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Moth.
0: And welcome back to Masters of Modern. I am your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host
1: Ben Bateman. And I'm excited, guys. I'm excited to be on this podcast. I, I gotta say, uh, we you know we, we gave you guys a challenge last week to tweet a hundred times at the MMCast 52 for our one year anniversary. And I'll tell you, we are recording this a couple days before it's gonna go out. It's Wednesday,
0: so uh, two two days two days after we posted the first the, the episode. A day and
1: a half, and we're almost at a hundred already. Uh, we just told so, I mean, by the time you hear this, we will no doubt be at 100. Uh, and we considered actually just picking the name out of a hat early, but it would be unfair to the remaining 20 that we'll probably get by the time that happens because we have to give them a shot to win the playmat. So so uh, it means
0: that we will be announcing the winners next week. Uh, there will become some school stuff. Because this went so well, we'll probably add some extra bonus prizes beyond the playmat. We'll explain what those will be next week when we're pulling names out of a hat. But uh, so today, today we're going to be talking about something interesting
1: you know But and i just want to add to that point just for just really quickly <laughs> before we do get into the, the episode because this is an exciting episode guys we're, we're taking your feedback we are directly giving back to the feedback but uh, you know in the in the course of this last week Esther and i got a little a little dewy-eyed we got a little sentimental looking back at the last year and uh and we went and we read some of the itunes reviews and we went back and we were looking at some of the tweets and just a couple things some of you guys have said it has been so encouraging and rewarding doing this um obviously We love to play Magic and we love to talk about Magic, but the idea that in some way any of you are gaining something in your life by listening to this, it it means so much more to us to know that than you could ever possibly imagine uh, that just, you know, please continue sharing with us. It really, really makes doing this feel like the most worthwhile thing in the world. So uh, thank you for all the feedback. And uh, lastly, at the end of the episode, Kessler and I will be just kind of doing like a little like – three to five memories of the of the first year. We didn't get to do it last week. We'll kind of just do a little little uh, whatnot. We kind of we did it already, too, in that episode. Well, the uh, year uh, review. The magic year interview. I was thinking like a podcast year. Like okay. our favorite moments on the actual podcast. Fair enough. Because there's a lot of cool guests and yeah. a lot of fun yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. So we, we can do that. But anyway, uh, let's get into today's episode. All
0: right. So today we were talking about Scry and specifically... Uh, the new Scry rule that is now permanent across Magic, we touched about it a little bit back when Origins was kind of spoiled and when that kind of the the first time they talked about it possibly being a rule, but basically scry the Scry Mulligan is, I guess, the way to refer to it, or the Vancouver Mulligan, That's I think is the called? way some people are referring to it. Because That's it was it.
1: implemented at Pro Tour Vancouver?
0: Or it was tested at Pro Tour Vancouver. I think it's implemented at whatever right, right. GP... Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But yeah, I think Pro Tour Vancouver. But let's call it the Scry Mulligan. It's probably it's going to be called. It's not. Doesn't have to be like Paris Mulligan. it's not going to be the same thing. Right. Um. But for those who don't know, you should know because it's now a thing. But for now on, if you Mulligan, as long as your hand size is less than the full seven cards, you get to Scry one as soon as Mulligan decisions are done before you before each player takes their turn. Right. Um. This is kind of being done in a way to smooth out mulliganing problems. A lot of it is Wizards is taking a lot of feedback they have from their on-camera stuff, and they've noticed that, you know, this is a problem. There are a lot of high-profile thousands of dollars on the line matches being decided by someone getting mana screwed or having a bad opening hand or mulliganing down to five and so they tested a bunch of different ways and they talked about a lot of them in the articles they posted of like figuring out a new mulligan rule and this was the one they came to and they tested it at the pro tour pro tour magic origins in vancouver and it was successful there and so now it's the law of the land unless you play commander and they are waiting to make their decision but that's for a different podcast Speaking of which, make sure to go check out the Command Zone with me and Josh. They do great content.
1: They do fantastic content. Um, and thank you to them for giving us the one-year shout-out. It was very nice yeah, of them it was to awesome. give us the, uh, the big shout-out. Uh, yeah, so it, it's definitely changed the face of Magic. I played, I guess I, guess I used it for the first time, I want to say, fa- like fairly recently. Was it this last pre-release or maybe a, I must have used it before that. I I played with it –
0: so I got the lucky chance to uh, do some drafts at both PAX and uh, GP – not GP, uh, San Diego Comic-Con with some Wizards employees, and they kind of have been doing the scry rule for so long that they were kind of just using it at that point. And so I got a chance to try it out there with them, and it, it definitely makes mulliganing less painful.
1: Right, you know what I think it was. I think I played in some kind of an event, like a draft or something, prior to this pre-release. But I don't think I ever had a mulligan, so I think I just never did it. Well, so
0: that that was the thing I noticed, and and we'll talk a little bit about some of the negatives of this rule. Um, but uh, during the pre-release, I think I mulliganed once. Yeah. I like had very good hands throughout the entire yeah. event. So great, and that was great. Partly because this is a set that encourages you to play 18 lands. So, like, the hands that I had lands right. were much more prosperous. Um, and they're spell lands, so they did stuff. So, like, I was definitely more willing to keep hands. But to the scribe rule, I didn't I really notice the difference. Like, I never really scribed. And I, I think part of that might be there probably a few times I forgot to.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it's a it's a new thing. People are getting right. used to it. So I guess the point of what we're gonna do today. And by the way, guys, uh, just in case you're listening early and you're like, I don't really care about the Scry rule. We are gonna be doing a brew deck tech at the end of this episode, which is like an original, uh, the MM Cast brew. So stick around for that, and that's gonna that, we're gonna talk about that after this. Um, but as far as this goes, as far as this this Mulligan rule goes, I think we kind of want to dissect some of the decks in Modern that are affected by it. Um, yeah.
0: So so I definitely want to discuss what strategies get stronger and what strategies get weaker um i think in general glass cannon decks get better yeah so these I think that's the fair. decks that are like i need to find a specific tool just have a slightly higher win percentage and in reality what it means is the decks that used to be worse at mulliganing are now better and the decks that were built specifically to be good at mulliganing have now lost percentage points because mulliganing is less detrimental to their opponents.
1: Basically decks that were basically decks that were like fair and balanced and could and or redundant. Mid-range decks that yeah. play a bunch of good cards and value and can value their way out of the middle of a game probably get a little worse because they are built to be better and decks that decks that you know, uh, see, and I,
0: and I wouldn't say they necessarily get worse. I think just the percentage of the, the field that were... Better. Yeah, the other yeah. decks get better.
1: I, you know, there, and there's a couple very specific decks that I think get slightly better. So I think that Delver decks, just in particular, just get better. Because of the... the I mean, and I, I've
0: discussed... Uh, and people have discussed the death online, but really... So this, this is the the reason people think Delver decks get better. It's because when you mulligan now, if you have a Delver in your hand, you can use that free scry to set up a flip or do something else on your turn instead of casting Delver, leaving it open to removal from your opponent.
1: Yeah, it's it's actually like the amount of improvement that, that gives you is so nominal. It's right, like... because
0: cause what it really is is you have to have a Delver in hand, an Island in hand that isn't a fetch land that yeah. like after a mulligan down to six and there has to be a spell on top. Or this card you scry away needs to get you to a spell on top. Means that, like, there's no. And you have to be on the play, not the draw. Because on the draw, you draw the card that you scry. So that piece of information is invalid. It it
1: probably. And this is just a total random number, but I'll bet you it gives you something like a 4% improvement from the previous. I don't even think it's that high. 4% is a
0: high number when it comes down to, like, win percentages. That's, like, the difference between 50% against the field and 54% against the field, which is huge. I think it's, like, point zero zero one percent
1: okay it's so like really low yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean it, it, that's fair that's fair but i mean uh, in the in the chances that you are on the play and you you draw that you're going to feel like a genius because you get a free delver scry uh which is awesome Right, and I do.
0: Th- yeah, I do think it helps the deck. I'm not saying Slightly, it's yeah. bad for it, but it's definitely not as big of a deal as other people think. I think the real decks that are getting helped are decks like Splinter Twin and more specifically, Scapeshift. Shift. So Scapeshift Shift has a huge problem of a needing to dig for a very specific card, which I think has gotten better with Bring to Light existing in the format and B, it has this kind of problem where it needs every card it has because it needs to get lands in play. Every land that it gets into play is a turn closer to killing your opponent, and every spell you have is a turn getting you closer or interaction with your opponent because it's really a control deck. So this is a deck that does, like, was previously bad at mulliganing that now is slightly better off because it can use that free scry to dig for the shift it needs or that land it needs to be able to cast whatever card it needs to be able to cast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the other decks... So th- this is kind of actually raises a pretty interesting question, right? So we've talked about traditional combo. So combo decks are... Scape Shift is a combo deck, wins in one turn. Um, obviously, Splinter Twin is the traditional combo deck, wins in one turn. But there's also the combo decks that are sort of, air quotes, unfair. Gorya's Vengeance, Amulet, decks that are entirely coming out the gate and, and can go off on turn two or three. Storm is like this... And those decks, in theory, improve even more than the fair combo decks do because of the ability to go off so early, and the ability to go off so early matters so much on your opening hand. Those decks play some dig, but like ultimately really, because they're capable of having a start like that, the fact that they can be a half a card closer to a start like that on a mulligan... Uh, just out the gate, whereas Splinter Twin can't get there before turn four. Even if they, even if they draw, true, true, true. Even if they can get there, four is the fastest that's going to happen.
0: Yeah, it really, it really helps the decks that are all about like Storm. Storm is a classic example. Infect is yeah, another classic exactly, example. Where exactly. it's, it's, it's. As I need as many cards as possible that are relevant in my hand versus Twin, which is I need two cards in my hand and a way to stop my opponent. So really three cards in my hand and then I insta win.
1: Well, so this is what I mean. What's so interesting is that. Um, We've talked about Affinity and we've talked about Infect and we've talked about Burn as if they're aggro decks. But there's always that conversation are those aggro decks or are those combo decks? Because they're trying. I think
0: they're aggro glass cannon decks, and glass cannon decks are the ones that are most helped by this new rule.
1: Of those decks, I would say that, that Infect is the most combo y. Because Infect is trying to set up a particular chain of cards to happen right. in a certain... Whereas, John
0: Finkel played Infect at the last Modern Pro Tour because he said it was it was basically Storm. But yeah. instead of doming, like targeting my opponent, I'm targeting a creature that's targeting my opponent.
1: Yeah, whereas I, I think that Burn is not combo. Burn is just redundancy. Burn is just inevitability. Um, right. And then I think that Affinity is sort of somewhere in between because Affinity... It doesn't necessarily lose. It's it an goes. aggro deck
0: with a easy slide into a very combo-y like finish.
1: Yes. Well, and I was going to say that the scry rule probably pushes Affinity more in the direction of, of it being combo-y than it otherwise would just because you can have those explosive starts. That's the most ex- the dangerous thing about Affinity Game 1 is that it can be so explosive. Right. Um, uh,
0: so, And, and I kind of want to clarify this because I keep breaking it up and I'm not really explaining what it is. So a glass cannon deck, what that actually means if people don't know. Um, so what a glass cannon is, is it a, it's a it's a Cannon, made of glass. Made of glass. <laughs> so when it fires, it can wreck someone. It's a very—it's a cannon. So these decks will kill a person, but any type of interaction with it will shatter it.
1: Yeah, or if it comes out too fast, it just can blow up because yeah. it's like it just fizzles. You go all in a storm on turn two or turn three when you're not necessarily ready, and then it just shatters because you don't quite get there, and then you've just destroyed the cannon.
0: Right, and, and, and h- historically, glass cannon decks are very inconsistent, and that's kind of been their weakness. They're very powerful if they're doing everything correctly, but if they don't, then it's very e- it's very hard for them to win, and they're pretty easily disruptible.
1: Totally. So, so
0: like, ex- sorry, go back. So, like an example is, um, in fact, if you kill their creatures, they can't win.
1: <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And I mean, no matter and, how many
0: pump spells they draw, they're dead.
1: And well, and then the other thing is, like, if you're good at modern, if you play a lot of modern and you know the format well, those glass cannon decks, they get weaker based on the level of experience of your opponent. Because once your opponent actually knows, you know, A great example of this would be. An experienced modern player will know in game one, most of the time, they only have to worry about two Pestermites and four Deceiver Exarchs in the main deck of a twin deck, most of the time. Now, it's possible they'll have to worry about more, but they'll basically know two of their creatures I'm going to be able to kill with a lightning bolt, four of them are going to be a pain, and after game one, there's a chance the combo won't be in the deck. So when you're thinking about deflating that strategy, you're thinking about attacking it, you know exactly what to do if you're an experienced modern player. The same could be said for if you think about a narrow combo deck. Um, what, what can we think of a narrow? Con- okay, in fact, you just, fact, used the yeah, just use the example. effect. If you kill their creatures, if they play Glistener Elf and you bolt their Glistener Elf, you know, as a modern player, you kill the creature on turn one, and after that, you kill everything at sorcery speed because their protection is going to be pump spells, and you don't you want them to burn their pump spells on your turn, right? So the whole the whole idea is that these glass cannon combo decks, the best ones are ones that. They don't really have as many weak points, but ultimately, really, if you know what you're doing, decks like that can be attacked, and usually there's cracks in the armor that you can just tear the armor off if you know what you're doing.
0: Right, and and another classic factor of these is they normally need the pieces of their deck to come together correctly, and that's where the new scry roll helps them. The fact that before, mulliganing down to six was super punishing for them because that one less card could mean the difference between your deck working or not is now a little bit less of a problem because going down to six is really going down to
1: 6.5. Yeah, totally. So if we were going to say, what do we think are the three decks that improve most and the three decks that either that either suffer or just by default nothing happens to them most? And we're talking like tiers, like yeah. high tier decks. So I think I think the decks that
0: don't nec- either suffer due to the new rules change or have the least amount of difference would be the black green X decks, the, the junk Jundon decks. Jund and Abzan. Jund Coco decks.
1: Interesting. You don't think they gain anything.
0: Uh, I think that Collected Company is all about, like, their, their deck is so much about just, I have all these good cards, and then Collected Company sometimes just puts me over the top of my opponent. Isn't a strategy that having an extra card matters that much. Yeah. Um, And I, I want to say the third one would be Tron.
1: I think yeah. that deck is
0: very, very redundant. I think it does a lot of the exact same things, and the things that it isn't redundant on, it has tutors for. Yeah, so, like, two,
1: just four. being down a card and seeing one card further, it's, like, not going to matter that right. much. The, the fact they have, like, all those bobbles and they have maps, and yeah. Sylvan
0: Scrying, and they also have, like, 8 to 12 board wipes, if you count Ugin as a board wipe. Like, their deck is so much more able to survive a mulligan than uh, most other decks, that I think they're probably fine.
1: I would probably say that the decks, the, the other deck more, or at least one we didn't mention, that really doesn't, in fact really doesn't improve i would say at all um are going to be fetch land based zoo decks that play a one drop invariably like a nakadal or something like that on every every game just because basically there's almost the guarantee you're going to be fetching on turn one to play a one drop every single game so like it's kind of the same thing we were talking about with delver it's just there's an even higher likelihood you're going to be cracking a fetch Right. Um,
0: I'd also like, I guess there's a lot of decks that, but like the, all of the decks Chapin's been talking about recently. So the Grixis control decks, I don't yeah. think get really helped by this rule. I also think the Teemer uh, prowess decks he's been playing, the ones with Abbot of Carol Keep, um, don't need the extra land that much because the Abbot kind of comes out and they have so much card draw and cycling through and they have like eight different draw cycle cards in the deck already for free
1: i guess i just mean the decks that are going to play 12 fetch lands for the purpose of either landfall or for the purpose of just like yeah, but i feel
0: like in those decks you want to have as many cards as possible because you want as many threats and you want as many lands to be able to make those threats bigger
1: maybe yeah i guess i just mean like if you figure 50 percent of the time you're going to be on the draw and you want i think with this rule well i guess you draw the card anyway don't you if right you're on the draw. it doesn't yeah. matter correct yeah, and that's before. No, no, no. Then on the play, yeah, it, it's you're just as screwed. So you, I. That's why I think those decks, those decks that play twelve fetch lands. Even if you like your card that you scry to, you're gonna have to crack your fetch on turn one because your deck depends on playing a one drop. That's that's what I'm saying. Is that the decks? Oh, I see. Like okay. Chapin's decks. They'll, maybe they'll burn a Gataxian Probe on turn one for two life. You know, Sometimes they'll play Serum Visions on turn one. Sometimes they'll hold open Bolt. Like some, That's just what they do on turn one. So it's not always going to have to be a situation where it's necessary for them to crack. Sometimes they're like, if the card's really important, I can hold off on this fetch land one turn because I'm a control deck. Those aggro right. decks, 100% of the time, are going to crack a fetch land on turn one. Yeah, And 100% the, of the,
0: the, the time... The Caudle decks. Because yeah. they need to be able to fetch to make sure they have the right type of lands in
1: play for their... And I mean, we haven't seen them recently, but there have been those steplinks landfall decks. They, yeah, they're not tier one, but you know, sometimes they're kind of fall in the same category. Um,
0: And we kind of talked about what decks you know, infect, uh, storm, scape shift, and infinity all kind of benefit from this new. I think infinity is another deck though that. Yeah, I think Infinity also. I think all Benefits. three of these decks benefit from this new role.
1: Yeah, I was the other one I was going to say, I don't think Burn gets anything, because Burn cracks a fetch on turn one just about every single game. They play a lot of fetch lands, and they you'd think, in theory, that Burn would really, really want to be able to get a land off the top and draw a spell if they could, but that's never going to happen because they maximize their mana every single turn to cast a spell, so on the play, they're just going to crack their fetch, lose the card, cast a Bolt or a Lava Spike or whatever. Right. It's the same thing. Um so, yeah, it's, it's actually interesting how it doesn't have as large of an effect on the format as you'd think. But the decks because that. Because of Fetchlands. Because, but, and, and I think sure...
0: if you're on the play because of Fetchlands. If you're yes. on the draw, so it's 50% of the time it's relevant. Yeah. And the, these type of decks, the other reason I do think, like the Glass Cannon decks, they're often the ones that are like auto win turn uh, game ones. Yeah. So like, in fact, is much better at winning game one than it is game two and three. Same as Affinity. Right. Especially Affinity. That's like the story of Affinity. Completely. And that's where, you know, it's on the play from that point on, so then that scry rule is really relevant. Absolutely. Um, So I do want to kind of get into uh, some of the negatives of the rule change. We've already kind of talked about what, you know, some of these decks that classically, especially pros, aren't a fan that there are so many in the format are good, but I also think there's a few other things people aren't considering. One of them is, is, you know, it's an interesting rule, and it's one of the reasons I thought it was a really good decision, but this is a rule that makes it better for good players. So, like... If you're a bad Magic player, not necessarily a bad Magic player, but if you're a less of a good Magic player than the person less you are playing, experience. less experience, this is worse for you because it punishes you for making wrong decisions more often. And so a pro who can take advantage of the fact that they're going to make the correct decision more often, is now better off because this rule exists. They're given more information to then decide off of, which means they have a higher percentage of winning.
1: Yeah, the the one thing I'll say about that that I think is pretty cool, and, and the best part about this rule, in my opinion, and, and we, the, we talked about the generalities of this rule a while back when it happened, but um, there is nothing quite like the feeling of having played a deck enough that you just sort of... You know the sequencing, you know how the deck functions, you know what to expect off the top, when you're sort of in that like, I need this and this to happen mode to you know, to get out of a pinch or right. win a game. You it's sort of just it's sort of the deck almost like plays itself because your experience level is so high. And in those type of situations when you know a deck very well, no matter what the deck is, that's really where I do think this rule is the most valuable. It's the most valuable for people that put in the time to get to know their deck because a half card in those situations when you're playing against good competition that also knows the format, is pretty relevant. I mean, the ability to get ahead on that one missed land drop that, you know, or what have you is, uh, is pretty notable. And so for that reason, in we talk about which decks benefit, which decks don't. I think any deck, if you're playing it and you know what you're doing with it, will benefit. And I think any deck, if you don't know what you're doing with it, you're just as likely to use that information to make a mistake as you are not to.
0: And the last thing I want to say that is probably dangerous about this mechanic, and I forget who wrote the article, but they wrote it when the Scrylands came out. But basically, the article was of the lines that Scry is bad. They were against Scry in general. Obviously, the Wizards and most of the world disagree with this person, but their theory behind it is Scry involves people touching their deck a lot and manipulating mm. their deck a lot, and it leaves open the chance for mistakes and or possibly cheating. And at higher levels, the fact that now I have an entire other opportunity where I can top look at the top card of my deck and do some shenanigans of drawing the card on purpose but making it look like it's an accident, drawing the card slyly, putting... A card on the bottom that's not supposed to be there, looking at two cards, there are so many weird little things you could do wrong here mm. that it definitely adds a whole level of possible complication to the game. Interesting. The the last negative, and this is one that I think is going to be fine, but it is something, is this is kind of another summoning sickness rule right? where a new player coming to the game just has to know this. They have to be taught it, and it's like a whole. It doesn't mechanically flow with how the game normally plays. Yeah. So summoning sickness is kind of like that, where you're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, you can't attack with that creature. You just played it. Right. It's like the first lesson you learn when you're playing. This is another like, "Oh, wait, why did you get to just look at your hand and why did you get to look at extra card? Because that's part of the rules. It's one of those like, oh, right, it feels like right, they're making right. up rules to win. Yeah. Card. That's understandable. Mechanics. Um, especially, especially even more so, yeah. You know, uh, people that are coming back to the game that left it. Right. So the same guys who are like, oh, mana burn's not a thing anymore. Well, mana burn didn't come up ever. This is a thing that's like drastically different, and they changes might a lot, yeah. have like a weird taste in their mouth if someone does it against them, and they think it's a cheat or whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's, I think it's a good rule. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I agree. I, anything that reduces variance and anything that increases fun is a good thing, and that's right. what this does. So, um, guys, we asked you on last week's episode that came out yesterday, um, <laughs> <laughs> though it's all screwed up. It's like time travel. Um we asked you if you wanted to hear more wacky brews from us. Uh, you know that we Kessler and I are roles in like in like the brew canon. We have very particular rules uh, uh, roles and you know those of you that follow and tweet at us sort of know I will take Shenanigan's cards and try to make something cool out of complete Shenanigans and Kessler will take cool cool deck ideas and he'll jam shenanigans cards into those deck ideas to try to make them work. That's like we sort of come at it from the from the different sides. So, true statements. yeah. At any <laughs> given time, you we are liable to start talking about some idea, and in this case, we asked you if you wanted to hear more brews from us, and we had an overwhelming yes.
0: So today, so for all you guys who don't want to hear brews, that's what you get for not yeah messaging us on Twitter. Yes, yeah, at so. the MM Cast. <laughs> and or at Kess Wiley and or Ben Bateman Media on all things, including
1: Periscope. Yes, so, including Periscope. So uh, right now we're going to share a brew with you. Uh, this is not one that is like necessarily BFZ-inspired. This is a, a modern brew that over the summer when we were talking about tournaments, and I would routinely call Kessler at least six days a week leading up to the PPTQs that weekend, trying to sell him on the idea that I should like just, just scramble to try to put together some deck.
0: This is how the conversation would go. He would call me.
1: <laughs> he would be like, I have a
0: brew idea. I'd be like, you should play Grixis Splinter Twin. He's like, no, 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 no. a Company, Moose Perian, Burning Tree Emissary. It's going to happen. I'm just like, you should play this deck. He's like, nope. And then he plays the deck. he lose. And then he'd come back to me. he like, you know what? Next week. Next week, I'm going to play this other deck. Geist of St. Traft. Well, Steelhead of the God Hand. <laughs> and
1: uh the conversations would basically just be it would be the, like like you could like track almost like week to week during the summer how it was gonna go it'd be like you know sunday i would be like super despondent because saturday had gone so poorly or you know whatever and then monday i'd call kessler and i would be like okay you know i should just i should just get on board i should just play a good deck you know this was it was a tough weekend i should just play you know, oh that's a good it's good eight. you can have abzan like okay i'll think about it Tuesday, I'd call him, and I'd be like, you know, I, I had a couple thoughts about my sideboard with the Coco deck. Now, I'm not thinking I'm going to play it necessarily, but, you know, I'm considering it Wednesday. All right, Kessler, I don't think Coco's the answer, but I do think I have this other idea. Let me tell you about it. Okay, Thursday, I got to get these cards for this deck. I need to try to put this deck together. Friday, should I just play Splinter Twin? What should I do? And then I would like inevitably like take two fully built decks to the tournament and just audible back to Coco. Uh, But in the process, there's like at least a dozen decks that were built in my phone or partially that will never see the light of day. And today, we're going to share one of them with you.
0: And he convinced me to let me let you let him share it to you because Geist of Saint Jeffs in the deck. Yes, we grabbed me with cards I like.
1: This deck is sweet though. This deck is like sweet. It's sweet. We don't know if it's actually competitive and it doesn't have a sideboard built, but it has a general main deck. Um, This deck is called Steel of the Geist Head. All right, and, so uh,
0: so we you kind of broke down the history of the deck, but what's what's
1: the game plan? Uh, with this deck, the game plan is to land a creature on two or three mana, and then suit it up with a sweet piece of equipment or a, a sweet aura, and crush your opponent with it. And it is a Grixis or it is a uh, an Esper deck. But there are a couple pretty interesting little notes that start this deck off, and I'll tell you where it came from. Um, number one, during the summer, there was a whole lot of Grixis. There was a whole lot of burn. Uh, Jund was coming back. Colagon's Command was blowing up. So, a card that jumped out at me was, and not because it's good on its own, but because in the context of this deck is good, was Vidalcon Outlander, which is from, I think, Conflux. Um, it's a, an artifact creature, Vidalcon Scout. It is one blue, one white, for a 2-2 protection from red artifact creature. Common, pretty unexciting card. The idea was originally there was a deck back in the day that would play tallowisp um which was a was a white creature a spirit from kamigawa block and it was a one three for two mana that stated whenever you played a a spirit spell you could search your deck for an aura and put it into your hand i believe am am i wrong on that on tallowisp I have no idea. I don't even know
0: what that card does. Yeah, well, that's it before in my life.
1: <laughs> there was a standard deck that sort of, like, back in the day tried to do this. Yeah, it's a spirit for one white, one color, so one three. Whenever you play a spirit or arcane spell, you may search your library for an enchant creature card, reveal it, and put it into your hand for an aura, aura creature card. So the idea with this card back in the day when the deck existed was you would play a white-blue deck with Disrupting Shoal, uh, Steel of the Godhead, and blue-white creatures, in theory, and you would be able to pitch extra copies of the crappy blue-white creatures or the Steel of the Godheads to Disrupting Shoal, which with Talos would then search up more auras for you, blah, 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 blah. Um, This has been changed for Modern because it's not that competitive. The most important two creatures in the deck are Meddling Mage and Geist of St. Traft. So those of you that don't know what Meddling Mage does, it's one blue, one white for a 2-2 human wizard. As Meddling Mage comes into play, name a non-land card. The named card can't be played.
0: So, that's obviously good. We've seen that that meddling page is kind of a classic card. Can you explain what uh, Godhead does? The the creature enchantment that the deck is built around because I feel like is the card of all the cards in the deck the most odd,
1: and sort of the most real, most necessary. Right.
0: It, it's like it's built around this card. It's a it's an R enchantment.
1: It's from it's from even Shadowmore. It's from Shadowmore Um, it's it's a hybrid blue white mana plus two colorless for an enchant creature aura. As long as Enchanted Creature is white, it gets plus one, plus one, and has lifelink. As long as Enchanted Creature is blue, it gets plus one, plus one, and is unblockable. Which means if you play this on any blue-white creature, the creature gets plus two, plus two, has lifelink, and is unblockable.
0: Right, which means Geist is a... 4-4 4-4, 4-4 unblockable lifelinker link, life that makes a
1: 4-4 angel that's hexproof. Yeah, it's pretty badass. Pretty, 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 pretty good. Yeah, Geist is very, very, very good with Steel of the Godhead, which is why the right. deck is called Steel of the Geist Head. The problem is you want to really be curring out with a 2-drop into Steel rather than a three-drop.
0: Hence, Meddling Mage and uh, the Protection from Red Artifact that I don't know what it's called because no one's ever played it. Outlander, <laughs>
1: which originally the deck had a couple more copies of that card, but we trimmed it down. So I'll just list off the creature suite right now as it stands, and this is these numbers are up for debate. Anybody who likes the sound of this and wants to get on board with numbers, please, because we have only tested this in theory. Um, we played two copies of Judges Familiar, so that if there's a more recent card, we we'll turn Hybrid blue-white
0: one-drop flies, and you can sack it. it to counter our spell if they pay one. It's a flying curse. A it's
1: a flying curse catcher. That's a yeah. bird, uh, it's a one-one and it's a hybrid blue white. So obviously it's not the best target for Steel of the Godhead, but you could do worse. It it's a it makes this card into a three three flying unblockable uh, lifelinker. So yeah, you could do worse. You only play two of them, it's just another thing you can play on turn one that slows the game down a little. You play four copies of Meddling Mage, you play two copies of Adalcan Outlander, four copies of Guest of St. Traft, and then three copies of Vendillion Click, which anybody who listens to this podcast knows what that card does. Should we state it just for the record?
0: No, no, no. But it's really good. Yeah. And you're just playing it because it's really good.
1: And because you see their hand. So for the sake of, of Meddling Mage, there's definitely... Oh, okay. okay. Otherwise, you'd be playing... You probably would be playing one less copy of Click and one more copy of Outlander, just so you could have a more of a curve.
0: Okay. Well, have you thought of maybe playing Gitaxian Probes instead?
1: Uh, I believe the original version of the deck played four, okay. and what ended up happening with the probes was that we just replaced them with hand disruption um, because okay. you don't really have one-drops in the deck. Oh, so, okay,
0: so you're playing... you're playing It's Esper, so you're playing a combination of Thoughtseize and Inquisition. Exactly. It goes for kind of the same slot so you can see what their hand is and the meddling mage on turn exactly. two to lock them out. So you okay. curve that way. So you kind of get double the hits out of your Thoughtseizes versus just a single card out of their hand.
1: Yeah, you basically, because you run three clicks, three Inquisition, three Thoughtseize in the deck, you have nine ways to see their hand. Right. Um, so you can
0: like strip their relevant thing with Thoughtseize and the meddling mage their removal spell and then exactly. they're stuck not being able to do everything.
1: Yeah, the, it's kind of a glass cannon strategy in some ways because you really, you do really want to curve out into the, like if you strip their card and play mage and then like suit it up with steel or something like that because you know they don't have a removal spell, if they then draw the removal spell you're kind of screwed. But, like, it's the sort of thing where you're hoping to sort of temple them out with your early game and just land this fat threat. So I'll, I'll get into the spells now. Um, the The deck in this list plays 15 creatures, which might be wrong. You might need more than that. But uh, spells, you play three Inquisition of Kozilek and three Thoughtseize. You play three Path to Exile, um, which obviously is just, like, the best removal in the format. Three Disrupting Shoal which is definitely a weird card in this deck. Can you explain what that card does? Um, Disrupting Shoal is an instant arcane spell from Saviors of Kamigawa, I think. Is that the ninja star? Saviors? Dis- Betrayers or I don't something? I this,
0: this is the era of magic I did not play.
1: Yeah, it's one of the Kamigawa sets. Um, there was one of these for each color. Uh, a lot of you guys know what this card does, but if you don't...
0: Shoals, you, you might remember, the green one is in Goro Vengeance decks. Yes, they're free spells. The red one is banned because it really really good with infect creatures
1: yes so what happens with disrupting shoal is that it, it, it's casting cost it's actual casting cost is blue blue x and it states you may remove a blue card with converted mana cost x in your hand from the game rather than pay disrupting shoal's mana cost counter target spell of its converted mana cost is x so you're playing three of these because you have a suite of cards in the deck that are kind of do nothing you want them to curve out but ultimately what you're really trying to do is make sure you can survive your four four unblockable lifeling creature um, so if it is a meddling mage, and you do have, say, an extra judge's familiar in hand, and they try to path to exile that,
0: well, it, it, it's it's bad force of will. It's kind of force of will plus, yeah. um, that enchantment that top uses counterbalance. It's, yes, it's force will plus counterbalance that like is a little bit harder to kind of pull off. It's seen some modern play. I I, I do wonder. If this slot could be used for something a little bit more versatile.
1: Proactive or something. Yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I think the the reason that it appealed to me is I was noticing the curve is pretty is pretty consistent and you have so many blue cards in the deck, plus things like a third copy of Anillion Click or a third copy of Geist because they're legendary, plus also the extra steel of the godheads, you have a lot of cards that Right. You, this allows you pitching. to kind of
0: like tap out on turn three and the Splitter Twin deck is like, oh, I could just jam this yeah. card down here to win on my next turn, and you're like, Get yeah, rid of that three drop.
1: Exactly. Like, you tap out on turn three, and then they try to end of turn cast to Severe Exarch, and you, Disrupting Shoal, discarding your extra Steel of the Godhead or your extra Vendillion Click, and they're like, whoa, what just happened? Now I have to deal with this threat, right. and my plan's done. So anyway, that's... Yeah, there's, uh,
0: there's a lot of decks out there, I guess, that would be bad matchups for this, that their three drop is the reason it's bad. So being able to exactly. take... Because Lily out of the Veil is another card that I would imagine is yep. bad
1: for you, because your game plan is hexproof creatures. And the whole idea being, because you run four steel, four geist, and three click, you have eleven cards on curve in that slot that combo with Disrupting Shoal to basically tap out and have an extra copy. And that, I mean, maybe maybe that's Magical Christmas Land, but that's the way the numbers are supposed to work. Um, we're gonna go over the five four drop the deck runs. It probably should only run four four drops, but right now it runs two angelic destiny which is awesome this card's sweet it's from m12 it's two white and two colorless enchant creature aura enchanted creature gets plus four plus four has flying and first strike and is an angel in addition to its other types when enchanted creature dies return angelic destiny to its owner's hand everybody remembers you could suit up geist with angelic destiny and it's bonkers um that's just another sweet thing you can do this card's really good um you only play two of them elspeth is the third one you're playing
0: I will say Elsbeth Elsbething a Geist of Sandstraft awesome. is is amazing. And yeah, one of the better things I've ever done.
1: Elsbeth Knight Errant. This is the four drop, the original one, the really really good OG one. O G Elsbeth. Um, and then you play two copies of Cryptic because Cryptic's sweet. And if you can land your thing on three and you don't have the correct thing to play with it, you can at least hold open a counterspell um, that just continues to you know you can tap down their board end of turns. The next turn you can swing with the Geist and blah 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 blah.
0: This this is also a card I think might. You might want to look at something else, either more in game plan or possibly more disrupting tools, because you've kind of now sold me on it, and yeah. it seems like you want to even tap out on turn four. Like all, all of your threats are sorcery speed. Yeah, so many of them are that, like,
1: yeah, it might, it might be, it might be. So this is this is an older list, so we haven't really messed with it too much. So now, now for the mana base, there's a pretty traditional, pretty predictable well, you mana have, base you have path, and you have a yeah,
0: repti- yeah, you have the you have three paths. Yeah, I always want to so. say dismember is the card I want instead of Yet. uh cryptic command just because what dismember allows you to do is on turn 4 play steal the godhead yeah and have one mana open to possibly kill their Splinter Twin if you need to. Sure. So it works there if you need it. You're already in black, so you can kind of mitigate that life loss if you need to.
1: It, it and... does. It, you do have to remember though that Cryptic does interact with Disrupting Shoal in the way that it can counter Escape Shift. It can counter Splinter Twin. Right. That's true. So it does have those uses. But I, I'm with you. It's 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 loose. It's like I said, the deck plays five four drops, and that's probably too much. Um, it has currently running twenty four lands, a combination of shocks and fetches and basics because you know what also stops scapeshift getting life <laughs> yeah definitely dark slick shores i'm um, playing three of in here uh, which i think is good um and two see chrome C- coast so because a lot of the fast lands yeah and that, that could be wrong but i it was something i had in mind uh, you get to play two i castle which is awesome because you play V-Click and Geist. Right. And
0: uh, it, for those who don't know, it's uh, the white legendary land. It's part of a cycle of lands that all come to play on tap. They all have an activated ability. So it's.
1: One white and tap prevent the next two damage that we've built to target legendary creature this turn. It's really good. It means that you can attack Geist into things and actually they can block and you can prevent the damage. Uh, this is a card that gained popularity at one point when those blue-white. Uh, those blue white like Geist Snapcaster decks that were sort of aggro-y, The World Championships. Yeah, no. The, years the ago.
0: GP San Diego. I rocked it a Londo's Castle. Yeah,
1: card suite. It's good. And then uh, aside from the other basic what have yous, I have a single copy of Shizo Death Storehouse in my list. I'm wondering what that card does. Uh, oh, oh yeah, this is great. One, one black. T- it's the same same cycle. It taps for one black, and it's un it's legendary, and it comes in untapped. Black and a tap it. Target legendary creature gains fear until end of turn, which is okay, sweet. Makes something unblockable. Yeah, it makes your geist unblockable and it makes yeah. your v click unblockable
0: against it's everyone. Lingering but... souls and yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so that's that. You know, the sideboard is sort of interesting. We'd have to think. It, the, the tough thing about decks like this is because the deck synergizes so carefully and the numbers are so particular. Um, the well, kind of,
0: the... I mean, like I can imagine some sideboard cards. Like you definitely. I'm a big proponent right now, if you're in white, to be playing the the white ley line. I think that card's very good against Burn, Black Green X decks, and some of the new combo decks that are out there that I think it's smart. I think you probably run um, probably three Lingering Souls. Right. I think that card is just the best card to possibly have against any deck running Liliana of the Veil. Just in the sideboard. In the sideboard. You bring it in, they can't do anything, really, because Liliana just... What they think is a good card against you is not as good anymore because Linkering Soul starts wrecking them. Right. Um, I don't hate, since you're in black, and this is more of a personal thing, but against other control decks. Because I do think the fair control decks are kind of going to be your biggest problem because they right. have the most removal. Uh, something along the lines of a, uh, a Bitter Blossom. And then... You know, like some amount of like dispels. Like you have all this blue, so there's a lot of good counter yeah, magic out no, there that
1: you could just kind of slide in there. That's fair, and and honestly, the dispel spellskite, like, <laughs> yeah, I love spellskite. Well, you, you, I think that you want to si- if you're going to do disrupting shoal, you, you'll have the fourth disrupting shoal in the sideboard in theory, and I think you would want a sideboard of blue cards, largely if you could, that could slot in on the same curve, so you would have sort of the the options to disrupting
0: shoal game plan.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's helpful, and then also. I, another card that comes to mind for me is that I think you would really want the other two of it, and outlanders in the sideboard. I know that sounds really silly, but imagine what happens when you find yourself game two, like you play against mono red and you have a decent shot game one against mono red because of geist and because of outlander. You mean burn. Uh, it's
0: no longer mono red. Yeah, okay, a tark of burn. Or whatever. <laughs> um, and you
1: have a decent matchup game one against those guys anyway because if if you can just land your outlander and curve it into steel they have almost no way to battle it and you can just start gaining four life a turn
0: so why not instead of why not just play two core firewalkers out of the side because yes you're not getting the unblockable and the one extra plus one plus one but i don't know what burn does against a three three protection from red lifelinker that they can't interact with that like they get a, you gain life every time they play a spell. Like I think they just auto lose that anyways. I don't even know if you need.
1: I still think the clock is relevant. I think I think I think just the just... one
0: the one difference in like yeah totally gaining and... four life against burn is enough normally just to win. And your deck has so many other just like resistant threats. Like Guess is one of the best. Br- I don't think your matchup against Burn is bad. I yeah. think Geist is one of the best cards against Burn because right. they can't interact with it and you just kill them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could you could be completely right. Um, I think my logic is there's, there's three pieces of it. Um, number one is that you want to think of this deck as tap-out aggressive. So if you're tapping out on turn three to swing for four, you really want to be able to do that and do that five times and win. You don't want to have to do it an extra... Like, you don't want to do seven
0: times to win. Yeah, but against Burn, like... You, yeah. Core
1: Firewalker... Like you could,
0: casting one Core Firewalker against burn is yeah. almost a win Amazing. anyways. Totally. So yep. why not just... Yes, you're not going to have the unblockability part of it. Right. And the extra plus one, plus one. But you're still going to... If that card is just for
1: burn... The other thing that you got to remember is... You're in a deck here that needs to hit black on turn one. Blue-white on turn two. Double blue on turn three so hitting double white on turn two to go with that out of the sideboard just gets even more complicated especially if you're trying to play like Igonjo Castles and Shizo yeah, death Story that. that's easy yeah <laughs> I don't know you, you could be totally right and and truthfully Liliana and Corsair at one point yeah. and then into
0: Chandra I think yeah. that deck existed <laughs>
1: o- honestly like Outlander is one of the loosest cards but I do think that if the deck was to function the way that I imagine it would I think that you would want the other two back at Outlanders Vidalcan Outlanders in the side I think they're or Firewalker Correct. you know I love Firewalkers so let's uh, let's get to the gauntlet let's All talk right. about a few of the decks that it has to go up against. Um and guys, there's no sideboard here, but if you have any suggestions for it, let us know. And also, if you just like have a better idea for this deck, the reason we didn't use Talos by the way, because that is cool tech. And originally, like, the idea that you would be able to disrupting Shoal and then just get another copy of Steel of the Godhead off of that free spell is powerful. The reason we're not doing it is because there's no place for a 1-3 for two in modern. You just can't. You can't play something that has three toughness that can't withstand a lightning bolt. And the idea is that. Outlander is resistant to Lightning Bolt, so you can just play it, and it doesn't die to the three damage burn spell. Um, So let's talk Gauntlet a little bit. Yep. So how do you think the deck does against the black-green decks? Probably a little tough would be my guess, and that's, I think, because a lot of disruption early to kind of make your drops bad mixed with, like, your turn three, turn four plays that are your best plays have a lot to do with, like, not getting your hand stripped, and the cards on their own, if you can't like put two of them together, are kind of mediocre. Um, you have a lot of blanks top decking. Disrupting Shoal is not that good off
0: of a top deck. Neither is Steelhead of the God. Neither is yeah, the exactly. Angel Enchantment. And that's like the the best matchup for black green decks or decks that are bad at top decking. Yeah. So that's definitely an issue.
1: Yeah, I mean the other the other thing also, is though. Also,
0: is good against Geist.
1: Yeah, I mean there is there is the whole thing though that like you're playing six disruption spells. So on the play, turn one, game one if you're against one of those decks, it's totally possible that you just play your disruption spell and take their removal. Turn two, you maybe curve into Meddling Mage, and now you've shut off the next piece of their deck that they can't play. And then turn three, you play Steel, and now all of a sudden you're in a situation where you probably have countermagic, have another disruption spell, have a path, or can resolve like a Geist or something like that as well. Um, I don't know that it's awful, I think that if you're on the draw against one of those decks in game one, there's a good chance they come out pretty strong against you. But I do think your deck is set up to kind of tempo out a deck like that. The problem is the redundancy and value in their deck means that I think by turns three, four, and five, they'll have drawn into multiples to do the same thing. And that's where I think you'll run into a problem.
0: Um, I I would also say I think Lingering Souls out of the side is a really good plan here. Yeah. I think that definitely helps you.
1: Uh, Splinter Twin. Twin I think you're pretty sweet against. I think Twin is probably one of your better matchups cuz you have the disruption early. You have free counter spells that you can tap out you can tap out and counter their combo plan. Um, and you have meddling mage on top of your disruption and and you have a protection from red main deck threat. So,
0: plus, I do think Geist of Saint draft in general is a good card against them if yeah. you can get around the fact that you're tapping out on turn three because there's no way for them to interact with that card.
1: on the play, I think against them this you, you you're kind of a house and I, and yeah. I think again, outlander in game two is a card that you would definitely want more of. Um, I think that card's just sweet against them, so
0: right, so uh Tron,
1: yeah, I'll bet you Tron's pretty hard for you. Uh, See, I
0: feel like you can race them. I think you just, maybe yeah you just kill them and they can't carn away Geist. Yeah. So like you might have just a game and like this is also I think where that bird kinda shines. And meddling mage kind of shines, both of them kind of stop pyroclasm. Yeah, it's true. Extent. So like
1: Yeah, meddling mage is funny against them. Like they don't they don't play spot removal, they just play pyroclasm and good cards. Yeah. So like if you can see their hand and they get their Tron and then like plus discards good against them. Yeah, you just name, you just like Meddling Mage naming Karn or like Wormcoil, and they just have it in their hand, and they just, unless they draw Pyroclasm, they have no way of dealing with it. Especially at that point, you might just have the hardcast mana to counter Pyroclasm with Disrupting Shoal.
0: Pyroclasm does seem very good against you, though. I think that is your problem in the deck, but that doesn't mean you don't have ways around it. Except for Outlander. Outlander doesn't get hit with it.
1: So you can curve into it. And also, like, if you have one Disruption spell on turn one, you'll probably be able to suit something up bigger than two, by the time they would cast it, right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Not not horrible. Not horrible. Okay. This is uh, all theory crafting, by the way. Right, <laughs> this right. Is all totally uh, affinity, uh, boned. Horrible for you. I think they're faster than you. I think they're way faster than you. Um, I don't think. I mean, they don't play spot removal, so you have like...
0: Stony Silence is probably your best option, and just yeah, running sweet three of them and the four of them the side. sideboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just enough of the side just to worry about this matchup.
1: There is again the possibility, like on the play, some affinity hands if you like Thoughtseize or Inquisition that that plating um, and you've seen like say the Overseer or like whatever the second card in their hand is and you can just Meddling Mage, they don't run a whole lot of removal in that deck in the main deck so they could sort of get hamstrung and you could get a high enough life total and a head fast enough. You have the paths to get rid of like the Ink Moths. Like it's not the worst thing but I think that if you're just an average, like your deck's not so consistent you don't have any Serum Vision, so if you draw the wrong half of your deck, you're just going to lose to them. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's kind of the way it looks. You know, again, tweet us and let us know your guys' ideas. This will be like – we're going to start the introducing... list. The list
0: will be online on rocketjump.com on, under this the, yeah. the page for this thing. So the, check it. Check out the full list there. If you have any comments, complaints, agreements, anything, yeah. let us know on Twitter. Yeah, we're going to – Or on the comment section on rocketjump.com. That's something we don't really talk about. And Jimmy and Josh get a lot of interaction there yeah. with their podcast, uh, The Command Zone. Which is a great podcast. Which is a great podcast, <laughs> uh, but they we don't you know we don't interact there as much. It's partly because it works a little differently than where we normally are able to interact. But check out the comments there. We definitely will interact with you there. So if, if you want to check out this deck list, go there, comment, we'll respond.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will be trying to do more brews. I mean, this is like something that we we heard, we'll and we'll probably and... hit you guys once a month with one of these. Yeah. So, um, Kessler, I wanted. I, I know I said this earlier, and I would like to do this for a couple minutes here. Um, we've done fifty two and a half, this will be 53 and a half episodes of the MM Cast. I missed the first eight or seven or something.
0: Yeah, I've done 53. you yeah. done, we'll, came, we'll have a little mini Ben yeah. year anniversary celebration yeah. in like two months.
1: I came in after Glenn Jones, um, carried the torch, and uh, we've had some some badass guests. We've had just, just a cool year in general. Yeah. Um, so
0: you want favorite moments of the podcast. Of the podcast. Our favorite
1: moments. Yeah. Of being on, okay. We do like three each or something and they call it. Um, no, I think we do I think, okay, sure, three each. <laughs> I think we should do like three each, and then we, we can call it. All right. Um, I'm going to jump in first, and I'm going to say that the original Tom Lapilly episode we did which we did two of them, but we had this great one, and I think the title of the episode was The Problem with Modern Pro Tours. We had a long conversation with Tom about the decision that they actually make behind closed doors at Wizards about should we run a boring pro tour or should we ban cards, and the difficult decision-making process that that presents. And it was just one of the most fascinating conversations. He was very transparent with that conversation and how it went. Um, That's an episode I highly recommend checking out. We had some really, really nice things people had to say to us about that.
0: Uh, so, I'm going to say, I think one of my favorite was the Matt Sperling episode. Oh, yeah. It's the so, like, that was like call. That was the first time we had a random, probably A list pro, I think, yeah. on the podcast, I would say. And like he randomly responded to a tweet that you challenged him on the internet and then yeah. just jumped on a call. And it was like, I was definitely the most starstruck for that one because at that point it was like.
1: Yeah, we had like a pro yeah, on the podcast. That was pretty sweet. We were just sitting in our room with our life size R2D2 and CD3PO stand up, and all of a sudden Sperling was on the phone. Yeah, that was great um yeah that was a good one i think the th- recent moment the thrilling recent moment with patrick chapin telling me that my superior burning cocoa <laughs> list was uh was a really good idea and it sounded clever and taking advantage of the lower casting cost was a cool thing and i should just keep that in my back pocket because it might become relevant again and just just chapin telling me that i'd come up with a clever idea was was very cool uh, as a guy whose books i had read and he was so gracious that podcast he really had a lot of fun things to say so that was a great episode
0: uh, yeah, I would say my second – getting Chaz Andres in this in the booth. You weren't there for that episode. You were on the phone, I think. Yeah, but I was like, in Seattle for that He's one. definitely one of the few writers right now or since I've really started playing Magic that I make sure to read every week. Yeah. Like up there with like Maru and like LSV maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and Chapin possibly. Agreed. So like definitely super excited to get him in, into the – into actually studio. I actually got to hang yeah. out with him. That was cool.
1: Yeah, I think um... – one of the big ones for me was, was at GP Vegas and we were, well,
0: the road trip, <laughs> a the two, road trip a, back.
1: I'd say it's a two parter. <laughs> yeah. The, the road trip podcast was a super fun time. Um, recording with a handheld mic in the driver's seat while driving. Yeah. Um, so p- people that don't know that we
0: also like, because we were recording, like took a three hour detour in the wrong direction. Cause we missed the exit <laughs> and didn't notice it for an hour. That was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was
1: a, that was a very, that was a fun one. Um, but I think in with that, uh, at Vegas, and you guys know this if you've listened to the episode, uh, I ended up playing against Paul Rietzel in the final round of the tournament, which is very cool because he was pretty much my favorite player, and I had never talked to Paul before. So I had said at one point to Kessler, we should try to get him on the podcast, and it so happened that he was at my draft table in the final draft, and I played him in the final round. and. He was like, of course, dude, no problem. Well, I'll come on the podcast. That sounds great. We had him on here and we. And he was on the podcast. Yeah. So that was pretty thrilling to just sort of have that experience of playing against a player who I had so much respect for. And then, uh, you know, like not just the random like, well, you do our podcast, but like I played you in the final round of day two of a pro tour. So you have enough respect to come on the podcast and actually treat us like
0: you earned that. guest. Yeah,
1: it was pretty cool. That was that was a big one for me. Um, You have one more. This isn't necessarily a specific moment, but I will say just like kind
0: of learning and figuring out how to kind of accomplish this podcast for the first maybe three months and like figuring out – you know, doing it with Glenn and just like kind of starting and with the help of Jimmy and Josh, kind of figuring out how to kind of publish it and and record everything. And there's definitely some early sound mistakes I made back in the day. I would yeah. like the Travis Wu episode sound was definitely really yeah, weird. Yeah, was a tough one. Um, but like just kind of figuring out how to accomplish this and like it being as successful as, but like just getting it out there and as much people have liked it.
1: Yeah, it's grown and it's it's definitely definitely been a lot of fun. Oh, one last moment that comes to mind. The Spell Scout argument on the original uh, Top 10 Artifacts episode was a huge one. Very, very memorable. Uh, just the level of outrage. Darstiel, Darstiel said, no, <laughs> this that is just you all in on Affinity. <laughs> top 10 Artifacts. That was a fun episode. Um, anyway, that, I think that pretty much wraps it up. So I, I, I didn't choose the
0: sappiest. Oh, your first episode, Ben. When you first came out of the podcast, that's my favorite moment. I I refuse to choose that. Yeah. I, I brought it up. It- <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It was a, yeah, well, I all don't right. even remember the episode. so – so that's it for today. Uh, I do have a question for you guys on Twitter, and you can either post this to us on Twitter or if you want to comment it on the comment section of Rocket Jump because we decided to shout out that section of the interaction with us today. Yeah. Uh, what card would you like to see a brew
1: based on? Yeah, what modern card do you want to see us come up with something wacky? Yep.
0: It has to be for a modern deck. You can bring a standard card up, but we'll probably try and force it into some modern deck. So hopefully it'll be good and playable enough. Uh, beyond that, I you can follow me on Twitter at, at Kes Wiley. You can follow Ben at, at Ben Bateman Media on everything. Yep, that's and, correct. Uh, you can follow the, the actual show. And that's where we interact with people the most at the MM Cast on Twitter. Uh, please rate us on iTunes. Please check out the Command Zone. We mentioned a few times this episode. Uh, they do great Commander content. Uh, so if you're a little bit more cash or you like to be cash once in a while – like to come to work in jeans and a t-shirt versus <laughs> the suit that Ben wears every day to all of his modern tournaments. Yep. Uh, check them out. They're awesome. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Once again, thanks. And we'll announce the prize winners next week.
1: Yes. Thank you guys for listening for a year.
0: All right. Bye, guys.
1: Thank you for your attention. For
0: further inquiries, send an email to themmcast at rocketjump.com. See you later, Alligator.